This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Canadians celebrated Weed Wednesday yesterday as recreational cannabis became legal across the country. Government-sanctioned marijuana stores opened their doors in some areas in the morning to those 18 years old and above in some provinces and 19 years old and above in others. Investors have also been excited by this move, though the market saw drops in pot stocks yesterday. There are not uh, very many brick-and-mortar cannabis stores yet, as private stores are waiting on permits. So consumers in Ontario and western states uh, have, uh, have to rely on mail order for now. States in the U.S. that have legalized recreational marijuana are keeping an eye on how northern neighbors, our northern neighbors, do as they argue for legalization on the federal level here. So what impact could there be from legalized marijuana in Canada? Michael Armstrong is an associate professor of operations and research at Brock University's Goodman School of Business in the province of Ontario. And he joins us now on the phone and joining us in a minute will be Andrew Hathaway, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Guelph. Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So what is the what are the projections of having uh, marijuana as a legal entity in Canada? Are we going to see a, a significant uptick in the in the financials in uh, in Canada over the next couple of years? There are all kinds of speculations and estimates. Uh, really, it's a grand experiment and we're all going to find out um, in one sense. uh not a big change as in the actual financials as much as in the accounting of those financials. So the uh, drug and illegal drugs, of course, uh, don't file financial statements, and so they're not tracked generally in uh, national statistics of GNP and such. Um, so our uh, statistics agency, Statistics Canada, has already projected there will be a significant jump, um, not huge, but noticeable jump in uh, economic activity as recorded. Mm-hmm. But really, that's a, it's just being recognized uh, what was already happening unofficially and under the table will now be happening uh, legally and therefore will get covered much better by statistics. Andrew Hathaway joining us as well. Andrew, what kind of impact will this move have, do you think, in Canada? What kind of impact? Uh, Economically speaking, culturally speaking, I guess the focus is on economics, right? Um, Well, there was certainly a buzz based on what I saw, um, celebrations, people lining up around the block at uh, the various dispensaries. I'm in Ontario where uh, it's only online sales. I did check out the website and... uh, Seemed pretty uh, pretty legitimate. A, a wide range of uh, I think up to 50 products offered, um, and uh, a sense that um, you know there's good quality, good selection, and uh, as long as you're willing to pay a little more, uh, not not much in the way of economies of scale uh, suggested. Uh, you know you pay at the per gram rate whether you're buying a, a gram or an ounce, uh, maybe a, a small cost saving. Certainly not what you get in the illicit market. Um, so that's a consideration. Um, I, I am seeing figures coming out suggesting that um, uh, about a third will continue uh, purchasing through their regular source of supply, loyalty to the friendly neighborhood dealer, I guess, uh, who is quite often a friend. Um, so I think these are the considerations 
moving forward economically. And uh, if 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 uh, what's happened in the in the U.S. is any indication, um, the, the prices may go down as as we uh, continue on with the legalization experiment, which would would make the uh, the government supply. Um, more competitive with what's available on the illicit market. So, Michael, will there be, it sounds like there will be an element of black market that will still continue uh, selling in Canada no matter the changes, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about a new industry. We're talking about a newly legal industry. Um, The cannabis industry has established producers, established retailers, uh, whether that's a uh, drug gang or just your local neighbor. Um, so the new legal retailers, the websites, the government stores, the private stores have to compete. It's just like, you know, if I wanted to start up a new soft drink company in the United States, I would have to steal customers away from Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Um, so the retailers that are legal here, um, there's a certain novelty, a buzz, if you like. Um, but when it comes down to it, they have to compete, so they have to provide service, they have to be convenient, they have to have competitive prices, and those are all issues that uh, initially, um, they're actually starting from a disadvantage, uh, but as uh, your other, our other guest mentioned, uh, prices are likely to come down. Uh, the wonders of uh, corporate cannabis, if you like, uh, we're getting mass production, pushing the wholesale cost. Uh, some producers are already below a dollar per gram. Uh, they're ex- expecting to get down to around 20 cents and uh, may be able to drop it down into the pennies per gram in a couple of years. So they have to compete on price. Another big uh, factor is convenience. Um, as you mentioned, there's actually relatively few stores open as of this week. Yeah. Um, some provinces like Quebec are uh, actually have very small numbers of stores that they're planning. Uh, those aren't going to make much of a dent uh, in the illegal market. Uh, provinces are looking at more stores. Uh, New Brunswick uh, is looking at 20 stores for its relatively small population. Alberta West, uh, they're expecting to have over 200 stores by the end of the year, private sector stores. Uh, that's going to be a lot more convenient, uh, and I think it's going to uh, have much bigger impact on the black market when that happens. So how much difference is there in the rules from, from province to province, Michael, uh, in, in terms of, and you've just kind of laid it out a little bit, you know, something that may be going on in Ontario might not be going on in, in Quebec or, uh, or, uh, or another part of the country, correct? That's very true. So uh, in the United States, you've got your federal and state governments. Here we have our federal and provincial governments. And the way it's worked out is the federal government uh, is put out the main legalization uh, legislation. Uh, they are regulating the producers and the products. But it's the individual provinces uh, that have come up with their own rules for consumption and retailing. So about half the provinces have chosen to go with a government-owned uh, retail network, uh, which gives them more control, uh, for better or worse. And the other half have gone with uh, allowing private sector stores. Uh, In terms of private sector stores, some of the provinces have chosen to ration or limit the number of licenses uh, rather strictly. Uh, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, Newfoundland, for example. Uh, Whereas Alberta uh, hasn't put any particular limit on the number of private sector licenses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ontario... Uh, We've just had a change in our government uh, this summer and consequently a change in policy. So instead of having a small number of private sector stores, we're expecting to see a very large number of uh, 
sorry, instead of a small number of government-owned stores, we're eventually going to see probably a large number, like over a thousand uh, private stores. But that's delayed until next spring. From what I understand, Andrew, this uh, this legalization also may uh, help deal with uh, some of the social justice issues up there in Canada as well. Yeah, we're hearing now about, uh, and this was a source of concern among uh, those who have uh, been advocating for legal change for a long time. What, what about those who have previously have been encumbered by criminal records and continue to be so? Um, I'm, I'm hearing talk of pardons now uh, working their way through the system for those who have uh, been saddled with uh, criminal penalties for uh, small-scale possession, for example. So certainly that uh, looks promising from a social justice perspective. And uh, I think probably goes some way towards addressing the cynics that would uh, argue that, um, you know, it's all about profit motive and uh, not so much about uh, the rights of users and charter protections and those kinds of things that uh, certainly the, the war on drugs has been uh, criticized for for a long time as an abject failure and uh, and certainly um, a form of discrimination from otherwise law-abiding uh, peaceful pot smokers. Michael, your thoughts? Um, I agree. Uh, that's more Andrew's area than yeah. mine. Um, but Yes, we're seeing, along with all the business changes, uh, the social changes, the fact that now instead of this being a criminal substance, it's just uh, a vice, um, that's going to affect, uh, actually affect the business side as well. Um, one of the things that's interesting from my perspective as a business professor is that we're seeing both bricks-and-mortar stores and websites right. uh, coming into the, this new market at the same time. Well, if you look at other retail sectors where many bricks-and-mortar stores have struggled against uh, big online retailers like Amazon, it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds, you know, which, uh, which form of retailing is going to succeed, and uh, the perceived stigma might actually play into that. Some people m- might prefer the an- anonymity of shopping online. They don't want their neighbors or their friends or the business contacts to see them in a, a pot store. Uh, on the other hand, there's other people who may be uh, nervous about typing their name and credit card number into a website right. uh, and then having that information somehow get hacked or tracked, uh, for example, by the U.S. border uh, agents. Uh, and so they might prefer just going into the store, paying cash, walking out, and not having any paper trail behind them. What? So that social aspect will also affect the business side. What about the, the, the aspect of people wanting to grow it themselves for their own personal use? That is legal uh, under the federal law. It's legal in almost under the provincial all of the provincial laws. Uh, Quebec is attempting to uh, still prohibit that. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how their provincial law may or may not clash with the federal restriction. But um, in general, most people in Canada, if they wish, will be allowed to grow four plants uh, for their own consumption. Andrew, uh, we're joined by Andrew Hathaway from the University of Guelph and also uh, Michael Armstrong, who is with uh, Brock University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Andrew, you mentioned uh, the lines that you you saw yesterday uh, with people obviously excited about this. This is really something that has been on the agenda of Canada for a couple of years now uh, since Prime Minister Trudeau came into office, correct? Certainly. 
discussions about legalization are relatively new and, and maybe caught some of us long-term ex- observers by surprise that the more modest step of decriminalization uh, was, was not uh, worked on first. Um, I mean, certainly for going back 40 years, there's been discussion about the need for policy reform and that a significant portion of the war on drugs was de- devoted to uh, resources um, for uh shutting down the cannabis industry, and a lot of that uh, encumbered people with criminal records for relatively small-scale possession offensive. I've heard upwards of, you know, three-quarters of uh, resources devoted to the war on drugs have been targeting cannabis. So it certainly makes sense from a uh, cost-saving perspective. Um, It does kind of make you wonder where where the resources will be um, targeted now in terms of uh, all of those uh, elements of the criminal justice system that uh, have variously been supported on uh, war on drugs activity. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a relatively recent term, turnaround. I think, um, I think it was uh, probably recognized that at some point um, it would be seen as um, more, more votes to be gained than lost. Through, through legalizing cannabis, and uh, is that maybe it's a somewhat cynical interpretation, but uh, certainly there's there's lots of uh, support from a criminal justice angle um, for that. I mean, whether, whether the government's um, talking points around protecting youth and getting organized crime out of the activity, um, it certainly it would seem to be cutting into the profits of organized criminals, um, perhaps diverting their energies elsewhere. Um, the promise to be protecting youth um, by making it more legally available. I, I mean, I guess that's based on the premise that uh, a drug dealers don't ask for ID, and therefore, you know, regulating it keeps it out of the hands of youth. But I, I right. suspect it's not going to be any less uh, available. Um, you, it certainly can be uh, gained through access through older friends and siblings. So I, I don't I don't buy that particular side of the argument. Right. Michael, as a business school professor, uh, I'm, I'm reading more and more that you're starting to see uh, classes being taught in universities on this industry so that if people do want to go it or, well, one, they have a better understanding of it, but two, if they want to go down that route, they, they're more aware of, of the ins and the outs, correct? Yes. Um, you're seeing that start up uh, in different places, depending on specialty and individual professors. Here in uh, the Goodman School of Business at Brock University, uh, we actually have a case competition running over the next couple of weeks, and this year's theme is the cannabis industry. Uh, how do you start up a business? How do you do a business plan in an industry that uh, is heavily regulated, is all kinds of unexplored, uncertain uh, factors? Uh, so that's what we're doing here. There's a community college uh, in the same city, uh, one of our neighbors, and they uh, have actually started a uh, botanical program for um, people who, want to, who are already in the agriculture industry but now want to switch over from some other crop to cannabis. Uh, so they are, they're running a one-year certificate program on how to grow it, uh, harvest it, uh, take care of its various needs. Um, and then, you know, you see uh, other universities, uh, either with business courses or with the social- sociology side uh, of cannabis. Our economics department this semester is running a, not specifically on cannabis, but a, a short course on uh, the drug industry and the economics of drugs. 
What about the—I mentioned before the rules and the differences between province to province. How is that going to work in terms of you know people going from one province to another and maybe— Possibly, and I don't know if this would be the case, you know, widespread, but occasionally of people taking maybe taking advantage of rules in one province over another, especially if they live closer to the border, Michael. Um, that's actually already happening. We've uh, there was a news report I read this morning of people uh, in the capital city, Ottawa. Um, that's located right at the border of Quebec. So there's people in Ottawa who apparently drove uh, to Montreal about an hour and a half away uh, just so they could visit the, uh, a legal cannabis store because Quebec has a few. Ontario has none yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, that's happening. That's actually not uh, a big issue, uh, uh, certainly not in the top ten. Uh, you are allowed to carry cannabis across provincial borders. Uh, you can buy in any province you want. You do have to respect the different uh, regulations for consuming it. Like here in Ontario, uh, you're allowed to smoke cannabis almost everywhere. You're allowed to smoke cigarettes, tobacco, uh, whereas Quebec is limiting that much uh, that much more tightly. Um, in some cases, you actually have to pay attention to the municipality's rules. Uh, the particular city hmm. sometimes has consumption rules. Uh, but in principle, no, there's nothing to stop you going across provincial borders. Federal borders, uh, however, that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, yep. You can't carry cannabis across the Canada-U.S. border in either direction. Um, even if you are crossing, say, into a state like Washington State, where fed, uh, the state level is legalized, well, the Border Patrol works with the federal government, and the federal government is not legal. So uh, you could have cannabis in your pocket in British Columbia on the north side of the border. You could have cannabis in your pocket uh, in Washington State, south of the border, but don't have cannabis when you're crossing that border in either direction. Andrew, that's that's going to present a, an unbelievable level of challenge, I think, at times for some people with all these different rules for and again, we were thinking originally the the national and also the provincial, but you also have the the potential of rules at the city level as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the, the various municipal jurisdictions are in a position of uh, opting in or opting out, depending on um, the appetite for uh, for this uh, form of new economy in, in various jurisdictions. Um, places like New Brunswick, where you know economic times are difficult, are certainly embracing uh, the, the new influx of uh, of taxable dollars and. Um, other places, not so much. I mean, there are certain certain uh, municipalities with uh, different ethnic compositions, for example, more conservative views, um, you know, anti-drug stances, anti-alcohol stances, for that matter. So I, I think it'll be um, a matter of uh, politically, whether it's something that uh, is supported at the municipal level or not. So uh, so lots of decisions to be made uh, at, uh, at that level as well, and, and certainly... Um, you know, funds for policing and resources and all those kinds of things. I live in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, I know there's a lot of nervous uh, dispensary operators right now who have been uh, threatened that uh, if you don't stop um, uh, operations, then there's no way you're you're, you're going to be allowed to um, apply for a license to uh, become, become above board and become a, a licensed operator. Um, so, you know, with the potential of crackdowns on dispensaries that have already uh, – long operated at the sufferance of police um, with the occasional shutdown if there's a sense that uh, you know they're pushing the envelope a little too far 
um, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of mentality, I, I guess, now are seen as direct threats to uh, to the government coffers, and, and, and in which case, um, we may see some stepped-up police activity around that. How, Michael, how, from a business perspective, how much potential? And again, maybe this is this is a hard question to answer right now, but I would believe that that there is an assumption that this is an industry that has the opportunity to to see some growth in the years to come. Correct. Yes, uh, and certainly that's what the uh, stock market is hoping for. Um, the estimates, as I mentioned, in Canada range very widely, but uh, I think rough numbers talking about like five, six billion dollars in sales per year across the country, uh, or maybe a better way to put it, they're thinking it will be on par with uh, uh, alcohol, like hard alcohol, not quite as big as wine or beer. Right, um, but distilled spirits uh, is likely to be on that scale. Now, of course, there's also the medical cannabis or medical marijuana uh, market that's much smaller, um, but it's still there. Uh, and but the really big hopes for the really big growth is international, uh, because Canada is uh, only the second country, uh, the first uh, uh, developed or industrialized country, if you like. Uh, to legalize, our cannabis producers, corporations, have a head start on um, what people are hoping, or at least some people are hoping, will be a, a global market. We already have some of our companies exporting to Europe uh, huh. for medical cannabis. Uh, we have some of our companies have set up uh, growing operations in Colombia, uh, where the climate is warmer and wages are cheaper. Uh, to grow cannabis for uh, Canadian use there. Um, so although there are certainly other countries around the world, uh, like uh, Israel uh, actually is a, uh, seems to be a leader in medical cannabis research, they haven't been nearly as aggressive in allowing its production or export. Um, so there's hopes um, that these Canadian firms could end up being the, uh, the, the leaders uh, of an international market. So this will have to this will have to end up being part of I would guess uh, of trade deals that are set up, correct? Absolutely. In fact, I was uh, joking with a colleague that the next time uh, a U.S. president wants to renegotiate a trade agreement <laughs> for the agricultural sector, we'll right. say, "Okay, we'll let you have more access to sell milk in Canada, but we want to have access to selling our cannabis in the United States." <laughs> Michael Armstrong from from Brock University. I can see that conversation going well, Michael. Oh, that'd uh, be real fun. Yeah. It would be. Michael Armstrong from Brock University. Andrew Hathaway from uh, the University of Guelph. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. Now, going back to that for a second, Michael. I mean, obviously, you have a, a variety of states here in, in the U.S. Uh, that uh, that have medical marijuana, you have you know far fewer that that have legalized marijuana. How much have conversations gone on already about marijuana, cannabis, and the relationship between the two countries, and and where we move, you know, potentially Canada as an exporter to the United States at some point? Um, so far, there hasn't been much talk about that. The main talk about the U.S. border so far has been. Uh, restrictions yeah. um, that the U.S. Border Patrol, um, depending on the particular agent and how they interpret the regulations, 
uh, is potentially going to stop or stop uh, our cannabis industry workers from crossing the border. Uh, from their perspective, that's uh, you know that's an illegal industry. Uh, now, the most recent clarification is as long as the uh, our, our business executives, our professionals are crossing the border just on leisure, that's not an issue. Right. Uh, but for example, if someone in Canada wanted to go across to Washington State to say sell uh, hydroponics equipment for cannabis, or a consultant wanted to go down to California to give advice to their cannabis industry, right. that would be viewed as supporting illegal activity in the United States, and the U.S. Border Patrol would turn them away. Um, so that's kind of the main thing that's talked about right now for uh, international perspective. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there is uh, already one uh, Canadian cannabis corporation listed in a U.S. stock exchange. Uh, we already have U.S. corporations like Constellation Brands, Molson Coors, uh, investing or partnering with Canadian cannabis firms. So that is already happening at some scale, but uh, until the uh, U.S. federal law uh, is uh, at least a little bit more relaxed, uh, that's going to be really hard to do much yeah. uh, with. Great having you both with us. Michael, Andrew, thank you very much for your insight. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. Michael Armstrong from Brock University in Ontario. Andrew Hathaway joining us from the University of Guelph. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.